This episode of the Weekly Standard Podcast is sponsored by The Great Courses. The Great Courses brings the world's greatest philosophers to your fingertips. With more than 500 audio and video series on science, history, philosophy, fine arts, better living, and more, The Great Courses are available on digital download and streaming at thegreatcourses.com or on DVD and CD or via The Great Courses apps. Best of all, you can listen to or watch The Great Courses at your own pace without the pressure of homework or exams. And now, for a limited time only, The Great Courses is giving our listeners an offer of up to 80% off the original price of selected courses, including The Secret Life of Words, English Words and Their Origins. For this limited time, 80% off offer, go to thegreatcourses.com WS to find out more. That's thegreatcourses.com WS. Welcome to the Weekly Standard Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Graham. With us on the Weekly Standard is Bill Crystal. And Bill, yet another week where the conversation is driven by actions, uh, violent actions in the name of Islam by a lone wolf, an individual actor. But bottom line, it's more terror. Uh, it is more terror. We don't know how lone a lone wolf he was, I suppose. He did travel, it appears, to the Middle East. And that seems not to have set off alarm bells or maybe not enough alarm bells. Um, yeah, we don't know that much now. We shouldn't presume too much. But um, I think most Americans think, you know what, we have a problem with radical Islam, with Islamism. It's a problem abroad. It's a problem at home. And somehow it seems to be a problem that a lot of our authorities don't want to acknowledge and don't want to do some probably commonsensical things to deal with. You know, it's interesting, the parallels between a single uh, act of terror in Charleston, South Carolina, committed by a guy who had no allies. In fact, he even complained on his website that he couldn't find skinheads and KKK members in South Carolina to help him. And the uh, shooting in Chattanooga, about six hours away, probably by car, and, you know, a lot of similarities. And yet one, we were told, tells us a lot about the American character. And the second, we are told, says nothing about the current state of Islam, about Muslim teaching, even though it's, of course, one of many, many attacks. Even if this guy it was alone when he fired, Bill, he's not alone at all in what, he's trying, what, what he apparently was trying to accomplish. No, and I think we have to – it's a serious public policy debate. It's not just a kind of interesting psychological or sociological debate about the character of a certain religion or how it's gotten – how people get radicalized. That's actually interesting to talk about too. But there are real policy questions about our uh, immigration, legalization, naturalization laws, the ability of these groups to find people, especially the travel, I think. It turns out almost – I, I may be wrong, but I think almost all of these lone wolves turn out to have been in more contact than was originally thought – with international uh, Islamist uh, radicals and terrorists. So I suspect there's a little more one could do from a public policy point of view in tracking these people and maybe uh, being careful when they come back into the country uh, and so forth. I don't know and I don't want to criticize the authorities. Maybe they did their best. There's always Things are always going to happen. But I think it's a legitimate public policy issue just as, I mean, I guess the uh, just as it was the previous killing where one could say, is there something that we're doing that's leading people to becoming to become skinheads? But unfortunately, the threat of Islam, that, that is something we all, everyone deplores and really is, as you said, a fringe thing, whereas the number of people who are being converted to not just radical Islam, but killing Islam, a killing type of Islam, is, is 
terrible. Well, so often in the case in our podcast, Bill, I'll be the one who's be overly critical. But I was in Boston when the backpack bombs went off by a guy who had been ID'd by the feds and then allowed to drop off the radar, a guy who did travel to Dagestan, and then there was no follow-up, and a guy who the authorities were so ill-prepared, Bill, that after they had his photo, they had to display his photo to get someone to tell him who he was, even though they had interrogated him and had a file on him. So no, we are not doing a good job. But there's one last part of this, and that is the ideological part. And I even hear you kind of stepping around it a bit, that there is an ideology. It's a set of beliefs. It's certainly at least as cogent as whatever, you know, white supremacist ideology that uh, Dylan Roof thought he was part of. And yet you can't, the same president who seizes opportunities to confront the relatively tiny problem of violent in the, violence in the name of white supremacy, you know, twists like a, an acrobat to avoid even using the phrase Islamist violence. And I think that that creates uh, an opportunity for people who have less maybe goodwill or good judgment, by which I mean Donald Trump. Well, in this case, I think it's an opportunity for every Republican and every Democrat, incidentally, to tell the truth about violent Islam and to talk about the policies that we need to fight it at home and abroad. As you say, this president is committed to minimizing the threat, honestly, both at home and abroad. I think that's, you know, is very much his deep worldview. And the more we talk about it, the worse it'll get, I suppose. So we can sort of hope it goes away. That's his view of the Iranian nuclear program, in a sense. And it's also his view of, of, of violent Islam at home, I think. But uh, I, if Donald Trump is the one candidate who had the wit in the last few hours to say this is horrible and unacceptable and we need to look at immigration and naturalization procedures and other and travel, you know, uh, lists and the other kinds of policy things that might help stop something like this. Uh, if he had the nerve to say that and the others are all not saying it, which may be the case, I guess, um, <laughs> you know, that's more credit to Donald Trump and more shame on the others. I and mean, we, 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 voters expect... They don't expect candidates to be pundits. They don't expect them to pop off 20 seconds after there's a, an event. But if something happens and it shows, as you were just saying, if it shows you something about the way the, way, the, way the government is working and the way it isn't working, the way it's not working well, they expect a candidate for presidency to say, hey, you know what? This suggests to me as a possible president that I'm going to have to take a fresh look at these policies. And doesn't this confirm that Donald Trump is entirely a creation of the Republican mainstream, that they leave issues that are important to the base untended, like immigration, like the fight against radical Islam, like even the fight that the notion that our ideology here in the West of liberal democracy is better than other ideologies. You leave those untended. And here comes in Donald Trump, who in between his... You know, waving wild hair and clown shoes is, is shouting, America is great, we should control our borders, and radical Islam is the name of the problem. And people naturally cheer that someone is finally saying what they've been saying around their dinner table. Unfortunately, it's Donald Trump. Yeah, and I, I, you say unfortunately because you're more of an establishment kind of guy. <laughs> I'm, I'm more open-minded on this by now. I mean, I'm, for three weeks I've been saying I don't really like Donald Trump. I certainly wouldn't vote for Donald Trump, but he is the one guy saying what has to be said. At some point you've got to say to yourself, I don't know, maybe I don't dislike Donald Trump so much. If he's the one guy saying that what has to be said, maybe you just have to give him credit. Having said all that, he shouldn't be president of the United States. But the other candidates really need to learn something from from Trump's success, and I totally agree. It's it's not just the base, incidentally. I think there are plenty of independents and moderates and people who are liberal on economic issues, liberal on other social issues, who on this issue say, you know what, Trump may well be saying what what has to be said. So it's it's actually a broadening of the Republican Party. He's not a kind of classic ideological conservative who's speaking for the Goldwater wing or something like that of the party. He's much more of a populist. He's addressing an awful lot of common sense concerns. 
Uh, Steve Hayes emailed me this morning. He's out at an event for another candidate down, I think, in uh, in Iowa, actually. I think he said a Scott Walker event. He's going to go to events for a bunch of different candidates and write something about it for next week's magazine. Uh, and he said the first few people he ran into were sort of praising Donald Trump for just telling it like it is. Uh, and we could use a lot of telling it like it is on the Iran deal. The problem is it looks like another we have to sign it to find out what's in it. And of the, all the revelations this week, what element of the deal, as you've had time to think about it and as you've learned more, leaves you the most disturbed? I think it is the money. It's the sanctions relief, the immediate 140 or $150 million for this regime uh, to continue to pay for and to be much more effective, much more money to pay for terror. This same regime and the same elements of this regime, some of whom incidentally get sank, get, ex get individual relief from various uh, travel bans and stuff in the deal, uh, um, who will be strengthened and empowered. Uh, elements of the regime that have killed Americans with, with improved IEDs in Iraq and Afghanistan, that have uh, funded Hezbollah and helped Hezbollah attack Israel, that have attacked Jews around the world, uh, destabilized the entire region. I, 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 the nuclear part is terrible, making Iran a, a threshold nuclear state. Uh, but you could say, well, maybe that was going to happen anyway, honestly. If we weren't going to attack Iran, maybe that was just Iran was going to be able to creep to be pretty close to a nuclear state. But the one thing that didn't have to happen, that doesn't have to happen, I think, still, and I think Congress could stop this on these grounds, is that we give them a lot of money. I mean, that is really astounding, this regime that has not mended its ways at all, that doesn't promise to mend its ways, that apologizes for nothing, that admits nothing, and they just get $140 billion. And, you know, it's interesting you can see kind of an ideological tie here to the events in Chattanooga in the sense that it's as though you can't get the people involved in the Iran deal to start off with, yes, we get it. Iran is a country that is different from almost every other country. It's run by these messianic, doom, end of times, radical religionists, and letting them have missiles and tanks isn't the same. But I, have you seen anyone pry that comment out of either President Obama or his key national security people? No, it's the opposite. Their attitude is we could probably work with the Iranians, you know, and we're retreating from the Middle East. And maybe the Iranians can do some work in checking the Sunni uh, crazies and checking al-Qaeda and, and ISIS. And, uh, you know, Persia's a great country. And all this talk, they still have to indulge in about death to America, death to Israel. Uh, they have to indulge some radicals among their in their ranks. But at the end of the day, this is a regime that's going to accommodate to uh, a decent world order. I think that's – I guess that's what President Obama deeply believes. I mean I don't see any other any other reason. Uh, for him doing what he's doing. I think it's profoundly mistaken, though. It really is an attempt to, uh, as you say, I think, right, not to come to grips with the nature of this regime with which we've been in war one way or the other for three decades. And they've in no way repudiated that. They've in no way said, this is not Gorbachev saying, you know what, we're changing the nature of the Soviet Union, and here's what I'm doing domestically and internationally to prove it. What have they done? Nothing. They've intensified their support for terror. They've intensifi intensified their efforts in the Middle East. Uh, they've never acknowledged all the lying and cheating, and we're just rewarding them. Yeah, but they also now have a new family leave program for their suicide bombers. So yeah. you've got to see the softer side. To, so what would, as I've taken to now, Bill, trying to understand America in 2015, I ask myself, WWDTD, what would Donald Trump do? <laughs> Wouldn't Trump seize on the part of this arrangement where everything that the Senate and House will, will do about this will essentially be overridden by a vote at the U.N.? And that that's the kind of symbolism, the kind of message that a smart politician would seize on to make that bigger point about the strength of our enemies, our weakness as a sovereign nation. Is, is that a, Would that be a smart move for Republicans to highlight that the president is going to the U.N. first and leaving the American people and their representatives with the scraps? 
Yeah, apparently he is going to the U.N. and they may do it as early as what, Tuesday or Wednesday. If I were the Republican leader of the Senate or the Speaker of the House, I would bring to the floor as early as possible Tuesday. If they're not supposed to be back, if they're not supposed to be back Monday, call them back a day early and let's vote. Maybe you can't force the president not to go to the U.N., but you certainly can pass a sense of Congress resolution strongly disapproving of this and saying that you will, in fact, People could even say if they wish that they wouldn't support an Iran deal, of which part of which is going to the U.N. before going to the U.S. Congress. Uh, why, why aren't Mitch McConnell and John Boehner up in arms about this and not just putting out little press releases? Why aren't they convening their bodies of Congress? They run the House and the Senate to try to stop the president from going to the U.N. And this is once again back to my Donald Trump is the creation of the leadership. This is an easy, no you know no-brainer move. I, why not take the policy? Just let's assume that it has no impact whatsoever. We're in the same spot. Make your political opponents pay a political price for doing things that the voters hate. It's campaign 101, and I, I just don't see anything. You would get 90 votes in the Senate, in my opinion, on a resolution saying it is wrong, it is inappropriate, it is contrary to what we were promised for the Obama administration to go to the UN before the US Congress, period. You get all these Democrats agreeing with you. And then let the administration, maybe you can't stop, literally stop the administration, but it would change the political dynamics of this deal. And it would put a wedge between the Democrats on the Hill uh, and the administration. And I, I, I don't understand it yet why our congressional leadership seems so passive and so unimaginative. And one last observation from this week that I think ties all together with the kind of the trend, you saw this, uh, the Planned Parenthood story this week uh, is another example of when people find out just how extreme the standard issue Democrats are on issues. It, it it works to the benefit of Republicans and conservatives. The average voter doesn't understand that some Democrats really want the UN to vote first. That's a natural what? M many people don't understand this, you know, Planned Parenthood making money off of selling body parts. And of course, everyone from President Obama to Hillary Clinton have pledged their loyalty to Planned Parenthood. And we've seen several issues like this lately, I think, Bill, where if the Republicans will be smart enough to highlight what the Democrats are doing, just highlight it. Don't fight them on it. Just let, it, let them show what they believe that they could step in and I think some of the evidence that the Democrats are their own worst enemies is the fact that Hillary Clinton's numbers hit a new low this week it's not because of Republicans what Republican has really laid a glove on her it's because the more Hillary campaigns the less people like her yeah John McCormick has a good editorial in the new issue that's up online today on the Planned Parenthood uh, scandal and yeah, where are the Republicans on that? Where's it lead? Maybe they, I think they could act legislatively to stop this. If they couldn't, uh, could they write a letter to the head of Planned Parenthood deploring this and saying they would sincerely ask that they stop doing this kind of somewhat barbaric uh, thing? Um, and it certainly doesn't this highlight the kind of barbarism of late-term abortions more broadly. Well, of course, that's why Planned Parenthood and Hillary Clinton and everyone don't even want to think about it or talk about it. But one thing a successful political party does is make the other party think and talk about things uh, that it doesn't want to talk about because then the voters do see, as you say, how radical that party is. And that's, to me, one of the themes that you saw from this week is the Democrats are doing their own damage. I still think it's amazing, Bill, that Hillary Clinton's numbers are this low. And I was talking to, uh, you, know, you know, when uh, we usually try to get a good guest from the Weekly Standard. When we can't, we get you. So we had thanks. Michael thanks. Warren. Thanks, thanks, Michael. <laughs> we had Michael Warren yesterday who made the point that he doesn't see how Hillary, t because Hillary's not suffering from Republican attacks, how do you turn it around? You see what I'm saying? It's not that she, yeah. the Republicans caught her on whatever taxes or something. This is her campaigning basically alone, and she's driven her own numbers into the 30s. How does she? Can she turn it around? 
I think the only way Hillary Clinton wins the presidential race, assuming she's the Democratic nominee, is by, you know, damaging the Republicans so much that she's less disliked than and distrusted than the Republican is by the end of it. It's a heck of a way to run a race. It's not impossible that she could do that. But that's why I've been pretty optimistic about this year from a Republican point of view. I think Republicans have a good chance to win in 2016, but not if they don't say anything and not if they, because there's always a way in which voters could say, if Republicans don't raise these issues ultimately about Hillary Clinton, you know, she's been around a long time. She seems like maybe she's competent and first woman president. And you could imagine a default where she sort of ekes out a victory. So I, I still think Republicans have to win this race. They can't count on Hillary Clinton to lose it. Bill Crystal, thanks so much for your time. We appreciate it. Hey, thanks, Michael. You've been listening to the Weekly Standard Podcast. Please be sure to check weeklystandard.com regularly for podcast updates. I'm your host, Michael Graham.